0: Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand, episode 51, my burb of the year 2020. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons, if you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa yes it is that time of year again time for bird of the year um probably the most hotly anticipated election uh every year in fact because they do it yearly not Three years, like they do with actual real people elections, like they are now, um, or at least have done when you're going to hear this. I'm recording this on election day, so um, you know, a a fair way in advance. Um, Reason for that is because if you are a patron, uh, you are going to hear this a bit, you know, a couple of weeks, a few weeks earlier. Um, If you're a regular listener, um, you will hear this a little bit, uh, or you know, you'll hear this uh, during uh, when the voting is open and reason for that is because this is you know kind of technically meant to be a patreon episode uh because that's what i did last year is last year it was kind of a publicly available patreon episode uh to kind of kick off the the episodes um on there that you have to you know you have to pay money for to get them um and we have not done as many as i would have liked um i will admit i've not been quite as good as i would have wanted however i think we can all agree that everyone deserves a bit of slack this year um given everything that has happened so um I do apologise for not getting as much out as I perhaps wanted, um, but you know, I think you can hopefully forgive me slightly. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with what the hell kind of episode this is and why I'm talking about it, um, we'll start with the fact of why I personally want to talk about this, um, and that is because I uh, do work in conservation, I do work... um, you know, trying to uh, protect our native, spe- native species and that kind of stuff. So I do have an interest and I do have a reasonable amount of knowledge about, um, you know, uh, New Zealand endemic and native species. So it's um you know it's something that is uh I I do have a knowledge of um that is not history um but I you know I do have a bit of a um a bit of a background in it um, and it's just something that I'm interested in um as well and of course New Zealand has a lot of in you know really interesting um and unique endemic and native species so it's it's part of um kind of who we are as a as a um as a nation and that kind of stuff it's all partially intertwined into that kind of thing um as well as maori culture and that kind of stuff as well so it's all kind of vaguely relevant to history um it's also just kind of interesting so there's that too as for what bird of the year itself is um that it is a uh kind of election a a vote thing uh opinion poll however you want to put it it is a thing that forest and bird who a who are a um kind of a community group or a volunteer organization here in new zealand um that are all about you know um protecting our native species and that kind of stuff um and they hold it every year to you know see who's the best bird every year basically um so it's just a cool little thing um you can vote wherever you are in the world um so you don't have to be in New Zealand you can vote as many times as you like I think as long as you've got an email address or something like a different email address I'm not quite sure how it works you could probably go ask them or just go look it up there'll be a link in the um in the description or whatever, the show notes, um, as to how you can vote. Um, so yeah, so it's just, um, a thing that we sometimes do every year and it gets very, very, Um hotly contested, it gets very heated in the you know, between everyone who's picking what they're gonna who they're gonna vote for and why and that kind of stuff. Um and so I just want to bring a bit of bit of tension to one particular bird, um, so that we can all learn a bit more about it. Hopefully you can vote for it. Um and as well as the fact that, um, you know, it's a bit of an advertisement for the Patreon. If you want to hear more of this kind of stuff, you can go pay money on the Patreon. Uh, link in the show notes as well so there's that too or if you don't want to do that you can just listen to this and the one from last year so there's that too and the other thing we should probably uh, mention if you haven't figured it out already is that this is going to be a bit more of an informal sort of episode it's obviously not me reading off a script which is what I normally do um, and it stops me from going on tangents and um you know saying words weird and, and, and all that kind of stuff so um so it will be a bit more informal there will be some ums and ahs as you've already heard um there will be probably some tangents where I just go on a bit of a bit of a rant or a bit of a um you know a side note that kind of stuff but also it does mean that there will be some swears potentially throughout it does mean we are going to talk about uh, bird breeding that's not your deal if you don't want to talk about you know animals having sex and trying to have kids and all that kind of stuff um that's fine, but that is a part of what animals do, and it's also a very interesting part of what animals do, so we are going to talk about that because we do love bird sex here at Hans um sounds a bit weird when I say it out loud, particularly just on my own um, anyway <laughs> so it moving on um see we're already we're already off to a really really bad start, but anyway, so. Let's start talking about the animal. Um, So, what it is is the Chatham Island Black Robin, which its uh, it's scientific name, yes, scientific name is Petroica traversi. Petroica traversi. We're gonna go with that. I don't know how to pronounce this one, so we're just gonna we're gonna guess that. But we're gonna call it uh, the Chatham Island Black Robin, or just Black Robin uh, for short, Um, or just Robin. Uh, maybe. Anyway, these guys are endemic to New Zealand, um, and they are actually endemic to a very specific part of New Zealand, which is the, funnily enough, the Chatham Islands, um, which is a series of islands that are about 800 kilometres east of the South Island. You know, so may- what they call mainland New Zealand. So they're only found on the Chatham Islands. They're actually only found on specific islands in that little. I don't know if you call it an archipelago, but that that little island group. um, They're only found on a few different islands there, um, which we'll talk about a bit later on. um, But they're only found in this very specific area um, of New Zealand. Um, And so the other thing you're probably wondering is, why did I choose the Chatham Island Black Robin, apart from all the cool, interesting facts that we're going to talk about? And that's because the Chatham Island Black Robin um, is... New Zealand's conservation story. It is THE conservation story. It is... Anyone who works in conservation, or anyone who is even remotely interested in New Zealand conservation, knows the story of the Chatham Island Black Robin. It is our most famous conservation story of bringing a species back from the brink. Like, the literal brink. Um, It is... it's, It's just so famous. Like, even people overseas know this story it it is it is that famous um and it's kind of one of the reasons why um you know you some you will sometimes or at least if you're in the business of conservation and that kind of stuff you will sometimes hear um when people go overseas or when new zealanders go overseas to do conservation work and um species recovery and that kind of stuff you know they'll say oh you know where you're from or whatever they go i'm from new zealand and they go oh wow like whoa like it's a real big deal that they're from new zealand and that they work in conservation like it gives you you know like it kind of gives you a air of authenticity and like i guess respect or or something like you're immediately already kind of better than perhaps what they initially thought in the sense that like you know if you're if you're like a i don't even know what comparison this would be i guess like if you're russian and you make vodka like it's immediately assumed that your vodka is better or if you're like i don't know um if you're french you're better at like i I don't know loving or something like you get what i mean right like you're immediately you're immediately uh just you know like people think you're a lot better and just a lot higher of you in that regard because new zealand has you know some really great stories and some really great um you know, experience and uh, track record of species recovery and that kind of stuff. The other kind of major one, obviously, being the Kākāpō, Um But yeah, this one is, you know, th- the other really, really big one so that's why I kind of chose It's because I want to tell that story um so there is gonna um there is gonna be a bit of history in this actually so it's not fully unrelated um you know there is going to be a little bit of history in this um but before we get to all of that sort of stuff we do have a bit of a process that we go through there's some points that we're going to hit um which is what we normally do in these episodes and the first thing that we normally touch on is the NZTCS which is the New Zealand threat classification system um because of course basically everything in New Zealand that is native or endemic, uh, is s- s- some degree of endangered um, or, or thereabouts. Um, so, that system is basically just a way to classify how endangered something is um, from, you know, not threatened at all to vulnerable to um, nationally um nationally critical um or anything like that so it's it's meant to be a way to kind of give a general idea of how well a species is doing or how close a species is to extinction or how not close they are to extinction um so the chatham island black robin is nationally critical which is on its own doesn't really sound doesn't really make any you know it probably doesn't mean anything um but it sounds kind of bad and that's because it is pretty bad it is one step above extinct so you know it's it's the lowest rung on the list just above extinct so it's uh, it's not doing super well in the kind of grand scheme of things but as we'll see you know there's a lot of effort being put into them uh, they're certainly a lot better than what they used to be so um so you know it, it, although that is really bad um it is also in a sense really good so yeah but we'll get to that um as i said later um but of course you probably want to know what they look like um because you know that you just know that they're a small black robin or i'm guessing you think they're a small black robin because that's what robins are like um So specifically, they are a small rotund songbird, and rotund is not my word, this was the word uh, that came from uh, New Zealand Birds Online, which is where a lot of this information has come from, Um, as well as Doc and and a couple of other places as well, Uh, but rotund was not my word, but I put it in there because I thought it was great, you know, it really does describe how they look, these kind of small, kind of round birds um and the reason that they looked quite or they look quite uh rotund is because they hold their head kind of hunched close to their body so kind of like you know i guess kind of how you do when you're trying to um give yourself extra chins or, or whatever when you're trying to do a funny face when you're doing a selfie kind of thing um, you kind of suck your neck in a bit to your shoulders i guess that's what they're doing permanently so it makes them a look, look a bit more kind of rotund and so the size is kind of between uh, a tomtit um, and other New Zealand robins, um, and kind of its yeah, and it, kind of its size and its shape and its form and that kind of stuff. Which again, for a lot of you, probably doesn't mean much, um, but you know, it's I guess medium-sized dish for a for a robin, hmm? I guess. Um, so it weighs about 22-25 grams, depending on you know the the gender and that kind of stuff, and it's about fifteen centimeters in length. Um, which you know it's it's biggish, I guess, and both sexes um are totally black uh at all ages um though juveniles do have a subtle uh pale streaking on the crown um so you know there's not really a whole lot of difference between um the sexes um they they, they both look pretty identical to a casual observer um i from what i understand you do have to actually like you know handle them and that kind of stuff to actually figure out um what the sex of each uh each bird is so there's there's no real way that you can just look at it and go that's a, that's a male or a female because the males don't have you know flashy colors or anything like that um, say for example compared to the hee hee that we talked about last year the male has kind of this black and yellow and kind of white kind of bits and stuff where these guys don't have any of that they're all basically all black all the time except for when they're juveniles obviously so their closest relations um, are, of course, other Petrioka species, um, which is the tomtit, which is, uh, its Te Maori name is Meromero, um, and the North and South Island Robins, which are Toto which, you know, makes sense. They're all in the same genus, so they're all closely related. Um, there's also the Chatham Island tomtit, um, which is another species of Tontit that is only found um, on the Chatham Islands um, and that crosses the same range as the, uh, the Chatham Island Black Robin as well, which is going to be important later on. Um, and all of these are descended from patriarchal ancestors originating in Australia. So I couldn't find much else on that point, but um, I think I did mention it in some of the early episodes um, where some bird species in New Zealand did originally fly over from Australia when the New Zealand landmass broke off from, um, from Australia. So um, I'd say that's probably where they're from. Is there Australian species that flew over to New Zealand and then as New Zealand kind of Moved further and further away, um, they they you know they kind of got stuck here essentially. Um, so their calls um, they have a kind of a limited range of calls actually. They don't have like quite a lot of different um, kind of noises that they can make compared to other birds because um, their songs generally consist of four to five clear notes, um, mainly mainly by males. The females don't do as much singing, um, and they're not quite as melodic as mainland robins. Again, not my words, but that's what that's what is apparently they said is they're not quite as melodic as mainland robins um so that's unfortunate but um yeah there, there's that um and both species sorry both sexes um give a simple downscale call uh, potentially as a territorial act you know to try and um you know stop you know or basically try and uh, stop other individuals from getting into in their territory and, and t- you know telling them hey this is this is my area get out kind of thing um, and a single high-pitched note uh, may indicate alarm or aggression. But that's all well and good, tell- telling you what they sound like. Uh, but, you know, you, you want to hear them, right? This is an audio medium, you want to be able to hear them. Um, so here is a couple of calls um, taken from New Zealand Birds Online. oh amazing, I don't know what they mean by they don't, they're not quite as melodic as mainland robins, but anyway, um, so what do they eat? Um, well they are exclusively, uh, insectivores, which, as you might imagine, means that they eat insects, um, from, you know, they eat all sorts of different insects, um, at all sort of life stages, um, so things from spiders, which are to be fair not insects Uh, flies uh wetter worms which are also not insects uh beetles moths cockroaches and caterpillars so they eat a whole variety of different bugs and stuff um from from the ground and, and that kind of thing so these guys um forage diurnally which is a weird word that some of you may not have heard of um but basically it means that they forage during the day they're they're diurnal right as opposed to being nocturnal like kiwis are nocturnal obviously meaning that they uh come out and are active during the night uh diurnal means they come out and are active during the day so they forage diurnally in substory vegetation uh and on the ground usually pouncing from like low branches um so they kind of get on a branch and they'll jump down and like grab the the bug or whatever that they've found um or they sometimes flick over leaf litter um with their bills but you know some stuff is um a bit big for them they're not a huge bird um so larger prey items like wetter um are thrashed against objects first to remove the limbs and make them a bit more um easily you know eaten i guess and so they don't fight back as much um so that's pretty pretty metal just thrashing bugs against like trees and rocks and stuff i guess so that's pretty cool um and unlike mainland robins, uh, they don't store foods. They don't um, have like a little little storehouse or whatever, I guess, of of food that they, they keep for whatever reason. Um, and so where do they live? Um, so as mentioned before, they're only found on the Chatham Islands, which is, again, as we mentioned before, is about 800 kilometers east of the South Island and they originally inhabited five of the islands, um, which are Chatham Island itself, which is the big kind of main island, um, as well as Pit Island, or Rangiodia, as it's also known, um, Southeast, or Rangatira Island, uh, Mangari Island, and Little Mangere Island, uh, which is going to get a little bit confusing, because, the, you know, there's Mangere and Little Mangere, because they sit next to each other, so that's kind of why they're named like that, um, so yeah, we'll try and not make that as confusing as possible um but unfortunately um you know they're not found uh on all of those islands anymore um human activities destroyed all the populations except for the one on little maangari island uh which ended up consisting of 18 individuals in 1972 so 18 one eight individuals in 1972 which is uh fuck all when it comes to you know species recovery and and you know breeding and all that kind of stuff so it's it was really bad and this population was further reduced to seven individuals in 1976 so you know four years later they lost more than half of that population which is again just atrocious it's just you know that that is that is not what you want to see obviously and so in that same year, all of those individuals, all seven of them, were moved to Māngeri Island. So they were moved from Little Māngeri to Māngeri, the, the the bigger one. And as of, you know, the modern day, um, they're only found on Mangari and Rangatira Islands, um, the two islands that sit next to Pit Island or Rangiauria, um which is southeast of Chatham Island itself, if that kind of gives you a general idea of kind of where we're talking. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of where they're kind of based and where they are. They're only found on those two islands now, Mangi and Rangatira. Um, and we'll talk a bit about, you know, kind of how that all worked and that kind of stuff as well in a little bit. So what kind of habitat um, did they have? What kind of, you know, we know they're on these islands, but like what kind of areas did they prefer? You know, obviously they're not preferring places like deserts or they don't live in the sea or anything like that. So what kind of areas um, are they they hanging around in? Um, So they tend to favour large areas of continuous bush with a closed canopy with lots of different understory species with edges that are enclosed by dense, sheltering vegetation. And they prefer a bush that has trees with complex structure, mixed height and age, which offers lots of nesting and foraging opportunities. So there's a lot of big words there and there's a lot of really technical shit in there. What does that all mean? Basically, it means that they're needy. They need lots of you know they need lots of complex and different things they need a very specific area they need specifically quite well-developed bush which is obviously hard to come by because well-developed bush takes years to grow um so you know they're actually pretty they require quite a bit they're quite a needy species in that regard um so habitat is actually quite a difficult thing to to come by uh, for them because they they really need those you know variations and complexity and and that kind of stuff and where they live and a lot of shelter and that kind of thing as well because these are very windswept islands um on top of all that so you know they need quite a thick about amount of shelter um to block those um you know those winds from getting into their nests and that kind of stuff and so we talked a little bit about population before, um, but in terms of what their population is looking like now, um, there was a census done before the breeding season in October of 2011 um, that counted 281 birds. Uh, Mangari Island had 47, and there were at least 234 adults uh, that were on Rangatera Island. So that's 234 on Rangatera, 47 on Mangari, you know, r- r- roughly um the population probably stands at around 300 individuals give or take it does fluctuate you know seasonally based on various factors so you know they're probably sitting at you know probably just under 300 individuals um at any given point um which is still pretty shit um again in the grand scheme of things that's still really bad um but you know up from seven that's pretty good (laughs) so you know so silver linings and all that but it is um you know it is not they're not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination um so yeah so there is still a lot of work to do Um, and there are some things that are really hindering them as well that we'll talk about in a bit um as to kind of what is going to make it difficult and what has made it difficult um to bring this species back to a point where you know they don't have to be as quite intensely managed And so how does the breeding work? Here we go, here's the bird sex. Um, Unfortunately, it's not quite as interesting as the hee hee from last year. Um, But these guys um, are interesting in that they are monogamous and that they may mate for life. Um, Again, which is another point that's going to be important in a second. Um, And they will often return to the same breeding site um, as well, which is kind of neat. Um, And they breed annually in spring and summer. So around about this time of year, if you're listening to this at time of release. Um, And they have these kind of cup-like nests that are built in tree cavities or dense vines, usually about two meters from the ground, which is really good that they're all the way up there. It means that they're just a little bit less likely to be hit by, you know, mice and and that kind of, you know, and rats and and that kind of thing because, you know, they have to climb up the trees and that means that, you know, if they have to, if the rat has to do more effort to get up the tree, they're, they're just that little bit less likely to actually get up there and get into the nest. But of course they do you know forage and feed on the ground um as we talked about before so that is you know a disadvantage there um because then the bird is right there and the rat can just go straight for them um but at least in this case their their nests are quite high up so it means that rats are potentially less likely to get at them but you know don't take that to mean that rats never will attack their nests absolutely rats are very capable of climbing they absolutely will have a go at them and so they have uh, clutches of about two two eggs or thereabouts. You know, it depends on the, the year and, you know, various factors for kundity, all that kind of stuff. But basically they have on average about two eggs um, every clutch. Um, and only the female incubates the eggs Um, so only the female sits on them um, but both sexes care for the young so basically the the male kind of just buggers off um during the bit where the female has to sit on the eggs he doesn't want to be he's not interested in that um but as soon as you know the kids you know come out of the egg he's like oh yeah better you know better come back and you know help out the missus or whatever so you know they do um they do raise the young together And peers are capable of raising two clutches per season. They do have that ability, um, but they usually don't. They usually only raise uh, one. Um, So potentially that's in case they lose uh, one of the clutches, you know, then they they do have the ability to, um, you know, raise another one to at least give them that, you know, at least that means that they've raised some young and they've actually bred and that kind of stuff. um, If they do lose one clutch, potentially, I'm not sure. And once a clutch is raised to adulthood, uh, they'll usually be kicked out of the territory, uh, but they do tend to have a long parental investment in a few offspring, which is typical of related birds. Basically what that means um, is that they tend to, uh, there's this this kind of uh, idea of like kind of parental investment where um, uh, you've kind of got two extreme ends of the scale where um, on one end you've got, uh, parents that give birth to the child and then just leave them they they do nothing um you know they, they they pop them out and then just go right man you're on your own uh don't want anything to do with you see you later um on the other end of the spectrum uh, you also have uh species that uh, have a lot of parental investment in, in the case of the of the black robin here where they um put a lot of time and a lot of effort into um, into the young to ensure that they grow up and then are capable of defending themselves and foraging for themselves and, and that kind of stuff when they eventually leave the in this case the nest um, the difference kind of in those strategies is that on the one where you don't have a lot of parental investment they generally have a high amount of um offspring at any one time so think um things like you know fish and that kind of stuff they will generally have quite a high amount of offspring um or insects will also do a similar thing as well um where they basically just they just basically have hundreds possibly even thousands of offspring and a good majority of those are gonna die um but it doesn't matter because the the ones you know there will be ones that do survive um but it means that yeah, you don't have to put a lot of effort into all of those offspring because you've basically hedged your bets, right? If you've got a hundred, um, you know, you've got a hundred uh, uh, babies, um, chances are, you know, 10 of them are probably going to survive and that's good, um, you know, with no effort from you. Um, and then, you know, and that strategy works. Um, whereas the other strategy generally involves fewer offspring so you know sometimes even just one uh, swans are quite capable uh, quite uh, famous sorry for that as well where they um only tend to have one or two um you know uh offspring kind of every season um but they put a lot of parental investment in that same with the black robin they only get two eggs roughly they put a high amount of investment into those two eggs uh to ensure you know that they do survive all the way through to uh adulthood so that they can fend for themselves and and feed themselves and all that kind of stuff and although you do find animals at both of those ends um but you know you find more often than not um you know most kind of sit somewhere kind of in the middle-ish leaning one way or the other um to those to those strategies Um, So, yeah, so for the Black Robin, they tend to lean a bit more heavily onto the, you know, fewer offspring but higher parental uh, investment. But unfortunately, these guys do have a low reproductive output due to inbreeding depression, which is something that we'll talk about in a second. But basically, inbreeding depression is a uh, fancy way of saying inbreeding. Um, you know, they, they are quite closely related. So therefore they have the genetic, uh, kind of issues that comes with that. Um, so, you know, as history nerds, you will know, uh, that the Habsburgs are quite the famous, uh, you know, uh, kind of, they're kind of the poster child for incest, if you will. <laughs> um, where, you know, they got that quite distinctive Habsburg, uh, chin or the Habsburg jaw, um, that, you know, was, uh, very uh or has become very kind of famous for uh in- incest and um you know genetic deformities and that kind of stuff um so yeah but of course not all genetic deformities or not all genetic issues relating to incest are visual um so yeah so these guys do have um quite a high amount of inbreeding depression that is not necessarily uh, visually obvious um but it is it is all the same still a quite a large problem um so as i said they do have a low reproductive output um, and in fact it is the lowest of any known uh, oceanic petro petrioca species um so it's pretty it's pretty bad it's not very good um so yeah so of course one of the the one of the not so obvious uh you know uh results of inbreeding depression is a low reproductive output and again all of this kind of stuff and all this stuff around the 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 lower reproductive output and the um, yeah, all the other problems that they're having is all down to that inbreeding depression so let's talk a bit about what kind of threats that these guys face because they do um well they are a bit more extinction prone um due to that low population and that low reproductive output um, as well as the specialized foraging habits the narrow tolerances for habitat type and quality and their limited ability to disperse so again we've kind of already covered a lot of that stuff um you know obviously the the low population reproductive output um but you know the specialized foraging habits they only eat insects and you know only insects of a certain size Um, and they have those narrow tolerances they don't tend to you know they need quite complex and quite um well-developed forest to um actually live in um you know and they you know it needs to be quite a high quality and quite complex um and of course they live on islands so their, their ability to disperse is not that good when you compare it to say you know the north or the south island which has a lot of different habitats and that kind of stuff and a lot of land mass that could be potentially spread to these guys have only got you know that small group of islands And these, you know, all of this is stuff that um, generally only these guys are dealing with. And of course, on top of that, they're dealing with all the other usual things that every other native species and endemic species in New Zealand is dealing with. So things like introduced mammalian predators, habitat destruction, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, all of these pressures are made that much more impactful because of these extra issues that the uh the robin is dealing with and as such you know it basically majorly hinders um its recovery and so on top of all of that of course they have that chronic inbreeding which is related to some of that stuff from before um which has been occurring for you know more than a century nearly um so it's also gives a huge loss in uh genetic diversity uh which means that the species is less resilient so kind of what that means is that you know they they don't have a lot of um you know so if we look at like diseases which is you know kind of kind of on the nose kind of topical right now is you know some people will be slightly more resistant or slightly less resistant to certain diseases uh, for various reasons um one of the the ones you hear a lot one of the classic examples is sickle cell anemia um people who have sickle cell anemia um which is a you know pretty is, is quite a bad disease um they are immune to malaria um due to the way that malaria kind of works and that kind of stuff um but you can have people who have uh you know half sickle cell anemia and half not sickle cell anemia and they don't get as much of the bad stuff from sickle cell but they are resistant to malaria i guess that's not a great example but what i'm trying to get across is that certain people have um you know certain or certain you know individuals in any population uh usually have um more or less resistance to diseases for genetic and other various reasons but if you don't have a lot of genetic diversity because you know you're all quite related because you're engaging in a lot of incestuous type breeding then you lose a lot of that genetic diversity you lose a lot of that ability for the population to be resilient against diseases to be you know if a disease sweeps through the black robin population and it's one that they're not resistant to it'll wipe out basically all of them because they've all got very similar dna um so that's kind of what that's about i don't feel like i've described that very well or explained it very well but hopefully it kind of makes sense um but yeah and because of all this inbreeding and that kind of stuff it means that the black robin has the highest degree of relatedness um, of any recorded avian species in the wild um so in the world anywhere they have the highest degree of relatedness, the the most related, which is again, you know, that genetic diversity is not very good. Um, so, given all of all of that kind of stuff, the long term persistence of the species is pretty unclear. We don't really know how well they're going to survive into the future um, without that, you know, species management and that kind of stuff and so going back to those kind of original populations um they were you know basically what happened to them um before you know before they got transferred and that kind of stuff and the reason that they declined so quickly um was generally down to um basically that they were being eaten by cats and kiore so the pacific rat um and there is also um issues with mice um, and apparently starlings as well i'm not sure quite why starlings would be an issue um for them but i believe it's potentially down to food competition so starlings were eating the same you know the same food that they were that that the robins were eating so therefore um they were out competing them not quite sure on that one but that seems like a logical a logical thing that would happen um so because of you know the cats the kiore were eating them the mice and the starlings were out competing them that really threatened um the the population viability And in fact, one population was also eliminated by destruction and decline in quality of habitat alone. So ignoring all the mice and the cats and everything else that's going on, one population was eliminated just because basically the trees were cut down. Again, because they need that complex uh, forestry to to live in, you know, so that was really unfortunate. And now, long periods of farming on Mangadi and Rangatira have reduced the amount of suitable forest available for them to live. Um, so it's now 8 hectares down from 113 hectares on Mangadi and 110 hectares down from 218 on Rangatira. So, you know, each, each um, island lost about 100 hectares of viable uh, forest for these guys to live in due to that, you know, long periods of farming again. Which is quite unfortunate so let's talk about some other random behavior stuff um they're often attracted to human presence um generally because of um a similar reason to why the fantail um or the pea waka waka follows people and, and and that kind of stuff is because when you're running along or walking along through the bush you're generally kicking up leaf litter and and, and that kind of stuff um which you know, overturns bugs and that kind of thing that the the robin wants to eat. So they're following you around to see if you you know stir up any bugs and things that it might want to have a bit of a go at. And so they breed, forage, and socialize almost exclusively within forest interiors, which is something that no other petroca species in temperate Oceania does, um, which I find an interesting statement um, because there probably isn't really any other patriota species in temperate temperate oceania other than the ones in new zealand um you know i don't think any of the pacific islands would be classed as temperate they're probably more classed as tropical so find that an interesting statement but it basically means that no other patriota species in new zealand uh do you know that basically breed forage and socialize in those forest interiors And they tend to be pretty reluctant to venture out from the forest, and they don't breed well in fragmented bush. Basically, if there's, you know, you've got an area of bush, and then to get to the next bush, there is like a, you know, a farm, or an area of open plain, or in this case, the sea, you know, because it's a bunch of islands. So yeah, so barriers and things that fracture the forest, um, including things like grass and open sea, um, you know, really make this a lot more difficult this means that colonization of detached habitat is slow to occur so you should probably stress that using the word colonizing and colonization in a uh, zoological context is different to that of a historical context it doesn't have a lot of those negative connotations and and that kind of stuff because basically what it means the birds are going to another area and establishing a population in another area which is Effectively, what colonization is when you strip away most of everything else that's associated with it, it means one group leaving a population to start another population in another place, is effectively what that means. And interestingly, they have a patriarchal social system based on territories, kind of as we talked about before, which are defended aggressively during the breeding season, which you can probably guess why that is. And they're, you know, quite often always alert and active, and they move around in kind of brief and direct flights from kind of branch to branch. In terms of how long they live, uh, males tend to live about 4.2 years on average, and the females live about 3.7 years on average but a very small number of either sex can reach ages of up to 14 years with old age considered to be about 11 years so they does sound like that they can live for 10 years longer than their average life cycle or their average lifespan um but i find this uh i find this particular statistic a bit dubious because that is potentially based off a single individual um a very important individual that we're going to talk about in a second but that's it that doesn't seem to be potentially based on a wide amount of animals or a wide amount of robins actually living to that age um so i'm not really sure as to whether that's an actual statistic that they've found that there, it, it does it does occasionally happen or whether it was just this one freak bird that just tended to live for a really long time I'm not sure but I do find I, I do have a slight issue without with that statistic without for further research talking of research let's talk about their research and recovery and as I said before this is obviously the this is the big thing this is the the really big story about uh robins and or black robins and and, and like everything about them like this is the thing that everyone knows about what they are so as we mentioned before after the population was moved to Mangere in 1976 uh, two more birds had died sometime in the next four years and of all the birds that were left none of them had bred but there was one breeding pair and that's the important part there was one breeding pair because again remember these guys are monogamous and occasionally do mate for life so that was really important but unfortunately because of you know everything that was you know there was only five individuals one breeding pair the likelihood of recovery was basically zero they were not very hopeful that it was you know it was basically only a matter of time before they became extinct however there was a team from the new zealand wildlife service which is basically the predecessor to the modern department of conservation that made a last ditch effort to basically bring the species back and what they did um, is they took the eggs from Old Blue, who was the female, um, and Old Yellow, who was the male. So they took the, the, the eggs um, and gave them to the Chatham Island tomtits to basically foster and raise them, um, which essentially boosted the productivity of of old blue and old yellow um so basically the if they took the eggs away the, the the robins could breed again produce more eggs and then those eggs could be taken away and given to another tom tit pair to foster and raise and then you know so on and so forth and this essentially saved the species this this is really what did it is taking those eggs and getting those other tom tits to foster them um, which was just amazing like it was it was just it's, it's genius is what i'm getting at it's genius and so the population was large enough in 1983 to move them to Rangitira island from maangari island which is where they were currently um, and by which point the total population was about 80 individuals so eight zero and it was at this time that intensive management stopped in 1983 but a high amount of monitoring was still occurring up until 1999, uh, when the population had reached about 200 individuals, and then monitoring was scaled back to allow for work on other species. You know, you've only got a certain amount of money and a certain amount of time and that kind of stuff um, to invest. So it seemed like they were doing pretty okay. So the the monitoring was was scaled back, and so another attempt to establish a population um, occurred between sort of 2001 and 2005 um, in a fenced area on Pit or Rangi neodia island um which saw about 40 birds move to an area that was surrounded by a predator-proof fence um which if you're not quite sure what that is if you go to the the hans youtube channel um you'll see uh when i go to Zealandia, um i talk a little bit about the predator-proof fence there and i and i show it to you as well so if you kind of want to know a bit more about that you can go see that there but basically it's a big fence that stops predators getting in you know makes sense so, unfortunately, this failed um, as the last bird that was uh, in there, who was named Spike, um, he disappeared in 2009. And the reason that they, this basically failed is not really well understood. Um, it seems like the area they were moved to wasn't cleared of mice, um, and this may have meant that they were competing for the same food sources, which basically mice outdid them at, kind of as we talked about with the starlings before. Um, so, this is, yeah, so as I said, that's the big in a nutshell, I guess there's obviously a lot going on there that I've skipped over, but in a nutshell, that is the big story behind the Channel Island Robin is the story with, um, yeah, the two, basically the two single, um, breeding pair and they just pumping out eggs and they giving them to, you know, dock officers get or wildlife service, um, people giving them to the eggs to the, the tom tits and allowing them to raise them and that kind of stuff. Um, which is yeah, just amazing. Um, and the the thing I didn't mention before was that the one the, the individual who lived for the fourteen years was Old Blue, was the female. And you hear a lot about Old Blue um when you're talking about Chattermile and Black Robins and, and that kind of stuff. Old Blue is the, the the poster child, I guess. She is the um you know, everyone everyone knows who old blue the name of Old Blue, everyone knows Old Blue. There's pictures of Old Blue, there's um you know, Old Blue is the you know, the the Mary you know, when it, you know, married to the Jesus of, um, you know, of the, of Robins, right? She gives birth to the saviors of the species or whatever, even though she is kind of the savior of the species, but you get what I mean? But you know, old yellow kind of gets a bad rap. Um, well, not a bad rap, but you know, he's kind of the Joseph. He, um, he just kind of gets forgotten. Um, you know, old blue is the, the Mary, she gave birth to Jesus. And then there's also a male who was also involved, but look at the female, you know, which is like, I don't know. I just thought it was funny. I'd, I'd never personally, I'd never heard of Old Yellow before. At least I didn't know what the male's name was, but I knew Old Blue. I di- I've always heard about Old Blue, so I don't know. Um, I kind of, I kind of, I, I kind of feel bad for Old Yellow. You know, he's out there doing doing work too. and and, you know he's not he's not getting the recognition recognition he deserves so you know not trying to disparage old blue you know old blue you know double thumbs up bloody good on you um solid effort but old yellow i think you you need some recognition as well so paki paki to to old yellow and old blue for really putting in the work of shagging each other to bring back a species bloody bloody good on you oh man good lord anyway in terms of modern recovery um this involves quarantine of populations from predators pathogens and habitat loss um so just like if you're reading listening to this at time of release just like what some of you are doing now um you're quarant you know they're quarantined from you know things being brought in and in terms of like you know mice and rats and stoats as well as you know diseases and all that kind of stuff It just so it happens that their quarantine involves a hunataya island as opposed to just your house you know and so genetic health as well is maintained through increasing population size you know the the, the there's no real way to increase genetic diversity which is what they mean by genetic health um you just kind of have to kind of manage them as best you can um and really hope that uh the species will, you know, get enough mutations and stuff that the genetic health will kind of increase and the diversity will increase over time. It's easier to do that with kākāpō because there was a very small population to start with and they manage that population of who breeds with who to ensure that the diversity still is maintained. Um, However, with obviously the robins, um, you know, they're all descended from the same breeding pair. Um, So there's not as much you can do about that because you don't have, say, 10 individuals that you can you know swap around and breed with you know each other at various times and all that kind of stuff to ensure that that you know uh, people who are too closely related or, or birds that are too closely related aren't mating with each other you can't really do that with the with the robins because they're they're all descended from the same pair, so they're a bit shafted in that regard but they basically just need to increase population size and that'll help with keeping that genetic health and diversity um, and extinction will be reduced by translocating birds to new habitats within the Chathams to establish new populations and planting new trees to create habitats. So obviously, translocating birds, um, if you've listened to the Richard Henry episode that I did with History A podcast, um, I talked a lot about how Richard Henry is the guy who pioneered that technique of translocating birds, which is the the kind of bread and butter of um docks, you know arsenal or toolkit uh today so you know that's that's a, still a big thing is translocating birds to new habitats um and as i said planting new trees to create new habitat again because those um, birds require that complex and well-developed uh habitat and This has meant um, that they have now planted over 100,000 trees over the last 30 years. Um, But the kind of problem is, is that it takes time for those trees to grow. Um, Especially when they're being battered by the winds all the time, being on a, you know, a windswept island and all that kind of stuff. And again, they need that complex forest. They need that well-developed forest. So it's not like they can just plant some trees and there there they go. They have to wait for those trees to grow. And that just takes a really long time. As well as, of course... um, What also helps is the strict biosecurity regulations that DOC has in place um, around the islands. Um, I wasn't able to find what those specific regulations are, uh, but based on my past experience, it'll be things like no boat landings, you've got to check all your bags for uh, seeds and, and mice and rats and all that kind of stuff um you know which which does happen people do um you know find things in their bags and that kind of stuff i actually had the the ranger who was on Matiu soames island when i went out there he said um somebody had brought in a brand new sleeping bag um you know they like literally just bought it that day from like katmandu or whatever katmandu is a shop in new zealand i don't know if that's the same as everywhere else but it's a it's a hiking shop basically or an outdoors shop anyway they brought this brand new uh new uh sleeping bag and the the person refused to to open it up um and, and basically tip it out which is what you have to do you have to empty your bag tip everything out and just make sure that there's nothing in it or there's no rats or mice or, or anything else that they don't want or seeds of, of exotic plants and she didn't want to do it and the ranger was like look just just humor me just pull it out just look just pull everything out just let me see and we'll be good so she did that and they found like two mice in there who had gnawed their way or crawled their way into it in the shop so you never know what may happen. But yeah, so that's probably the kind of things that they're doing is you know, no boat, boat landings, you've got to check all your bags, um, you've got to scrub your feet um, of any dirt or seeds or anything like that, um, it, which is all very typical stuff of predator free um, islands um, around the country. And so monitoring of populations is also still done, even though it was scaled back. Um, and it's, you, it used to indicate that uh, population was declining. For some reason but they couldn't really figure out why um, and it seems that they may have not been sampling enough um, so instead um, one of the ways they they increased their sampling was to present uh, mealworms to the robins to get them to come to them um, when they when the people walked into their territory uh, which obviously makes it easier if the robin comes to you it's easy to count them you can just see them see their bands on their legs and go yep that's that one that's that one cool however this method is Quite labor intensive. You know, you actually got to go out there and, you know, present the mealworms and wait for them to come to you and stuff. And I'm guessing there's like repeats of the same birds coming to grab mealworms off you again and again. So, you know, it is quite labor intensive. And it apparently takes a few years before the population will actually trust humans enough to actually take the handouts. Um, so it's not something that you can just go out and do kind of on a whim. It is something that does require, um, quite a bit of, um, investment and time and, um, you know, quite a bit of willpower and, and of course money to do. Cause you know, you've got to get people out there and, you know, unless you're using volunteers, you've got to pay them and, and you've got to, regardless of whether you're using volunteers or paid personnel, you have to feed them, um, and house them and all that kind of stuff as well. So it don't, you know, we don't like talking about money, but you know, money is a factor when it comes to things like this um and that's pretty much all the information i've got for this roughly hour-long episode about the chatham island black robin um so the black robin of course does have a recovery plan which can be found on doc's website but i'll also put um a link to that in the show notes as well if you'd like to if you're a huge nerd and you want to read that um it's all pretty you know the sort sort of stuff you would expect from a recovery program um so yeah so that's pretty much it um so hopefully uh you will give the chatham island black robin um your vote this year um when it comes to the uh bird of the year award um i think it's a really interesting animal it's obviously got a great story behind it uh, and it's extremely endangered um and i think you know giving more um you know because there is because there is a a real world effect from from these as well it's not just a fun it is i mean it is it is a fun kind of dumb thing that we do every year um because why not but it does have kind of real world impacts by get you know by one bird winning a uh winning the the, the bird of the year award it does increase their exposure and it does increase um, you know, the amount of donations that people may get towards their recovery and that kind of thing. So, you know, it does it does have a real world uh, impact, um, even if it is just minor in that it gives more exposure and then people want to, you know, try and save them a bit more and that kind of stuff. So it is, you know, so hopefully, you know, you do give these guys, um, you know, a bit of your your vote um, because they are a great species. Um, and, you know, we I think, you know, it'd be really cool to bring back more of them. Um, but I guess, uh, you know, there is kind of one before we go fully out there's one kind of uh thing that i have missed a little bit which is the chatham island black robin does present the or it is kind of part of this um ar- argument's not quite the right word discussion um on whether we should be saving individual species that are that you know basically have no hope um of coming back um so generally things like the chatham island black robin or the kakapo are kind of pointed to in terms of, like, we invest a lot of money, particularly kakapo at the moment, we invest a lot of money into bringing these species back when there are hundreds, possibly thousands of species that are facing similar problems that we don't pour as much money into. And a lot of the reason for that is because they're not cute, fluffy-looking things that the public really likes, you know, and that are really easily marketable, essentially. And so the question becomes, should we be putting all this money into individual species that potentially have very little ecological value in terms of they don't they aren't like a a key species in the food web or key species in um, a habitat or a particular area or anything like that they're just kind of there you know all species are important obviously to the food chain and to the ecology of an area but some are obviously more important than others that's just how it works and so should we be putting all these money, all this money, into saving these individual species? It's you know, there's not any clear answer to this. You know, like, it obviously, is possible. We can do it, as evidenced by the black robin and the kakapo. It's not impossible. We can absolutely do it. But the question is, is that where we want to be putting our money? Is that where we want to be putting our our resources, our effort, our time, everything else, um, our 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 political willpower, our you know, our um. You know, everything, our brain power, all of that stuff, our research, is that where we want to be putting it? There's no clear answer. There's no ne- there's no necessarily wrong answer. But it is a question that has been asked before and is perhaps something that we should ask in future. But for now, hopefully you will give your uh, vote to the Chatham Island Black Robin. Um, so if you are, as mentioned earlier, if you are interested in more of these kind of uh, episodes on... Um, you know birds and um other species um i do talk a little bit about them in the patreon episodes um so for anyone who is a five dollar or above donator you can get access to those uh to those episodes as well and we talk about this we talk about or stuff like this we also um i have started a series where me and my brother review uh new zealand uh movies and we talk about it a bit the first one uh, we've only got one up at the moment because it's um, a bit difficult at the moment trying to align our schedules to record um but the one we have got is the world's fastest indian which is one that is um quite close to us personally because it was made in the in the city that we're from and about a guy from the city that we're from and we just fucking rip it to shreds (laughs) which is uh, not probably not the greatest look but you know we do do that and, we, and I do have things planned down the line as well. Um, eventually, uh, I'm hoping to do one on the kind of geography of New Zealand because um, it has been requested in the past and I do realise that some of you, when I talk about places like Taranaki, Golden Bay, uh, the Uruwiras and that kind of stuff, you probably don't know where those are. Um it probably doesn't mean much to you if you're not from New Zealand. So um just doing a bit of a um you know, look, here's where this is, here's where this is, and, and this is kind of where everything kind of looks, and here's where the main population centers are and how many people live there and whatever else I can kind of think of. But just kind of generally an idea of what each area is kind of where each area is, where the major stuff is, and other random bits and bobs, just so you kind of have a general overview of where stuff is, because of course, as we go further into, um, or at least when Europeans turn up and start settling and that kind of stuff, um, you know, the, the the city names are going to start cropping up as well, and it's going to come a bit more important to to know those sorts of areas and kind of vaguely where those areas are, especially when we start talking about wars and and, and troop movements and and that kind of stuff uh, as well. So, if you are interested in uh, donating to the podcast, either because you want to get access to other stuff that i do um or just other you just want to donate to the podcast because you're a good person and you just want to support um what hans is about um please do so there will be a link in the show notes to it as well but with that i think we will cut off this extremely long episode um and leave it there. so as always hāri tu atu hoki tu mai see you next time